Welcome to the Mastering the Game of Life podcast. In this podcast, there'll be insights around three key areas to mastering the game of life. Purpose, prosperity, philanthropy. Your host, Paul Lowe, the third sector mentor, is the founder of Hearts Global CIC, which along with many other of his charitable commitments, has been responsible for positively impacting thousands of people's lives, particularly young people from disadvantaged communities. Author of Mastering the Game of Life, From Pain to Purpose, and Speaking from Our Hearts books. Introducing your host, Paul Lowe. A very warm welcome to this Mastering Life podcast, and I am extremely honoured to have with me a, uh, and I will use the word legend, in in an era where the word legend these days is thrown around like confetti, but uh, the gentleman that uh, is about to be unfolded is absolutely a legend in football, and particularly in Nottingham Forest folklore, um, because he was a player, he was a manager, he was a chairman, he's a current ambassador. Um, and I think it's fair to say, and I'm sure I'll be corrected if I've got this wrong, um, the Vice Chair of the League Managers Association. So without further ado, it is, as I say, my great honour and privilege to introduce Mr. Frank Clark. Hiya, Paul. Good to be here. Uh, yeah, that was all right. Very spot on. <laughs> You've uh, obviously been doing your homework. Yeah, as I say, things change. Uh, they say a, a week's a long time in politics, but uh, I'm sure you know better than most that in football it's an absolute eternity. Absolutely, yeah, especially the way the game is now. Yeah, okay. So I'd like to start, Frank. I mean, um, as I said, um, you know, we, we've worked together before on uh, on a book, Speaking From Our Hearts, which you did a story, Lucky Jim and His Guitar. Um, I don't want to delve too much in, into that book because that's now history. I want to focus more, um, if we can, on your new book, Black and White and Red All Over. Yeah, well, that'll be very kind of you. I, uh, it's more of an autobiography. This okay. uh, I did a book previously, which was about the game from my own uh, experiences. Uh, but this is more or less a biography that uh, I've done with um, Terry Bowles. Terry Bowles, yeah. Okay. So do you want to give us a, a bit more of an insight, Frank, how deep you've gone on that, some of the things? Because certainly from a podcast point of view, what I always say um, to my guests is, uh, particularly the sports people, we don't really want to dig too deep about, you know, the goals you've scored or the championships you've won well, or whatever. It won't take you long to talk about the goals I scored, Paul, that's for sure. <laughs> about 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah. Um, so more, what I try and do is scratch below the surface and, and uh, in the context of your good self, Frank, educate listeners around Frank the man rather than Frank the football or Frank the chairman. Well, the the book would, wouldn't, probably wouldn't do that. Uh, we've had to leave a lot out, actually. Right. Uh, um, quite a bit that I'd hope we could get to talk about, about more about my childhood, okay. um, more about the, the cricket that I played in the Northeast. But um, there was so much to talk about and so much to get in there that obviously we had to leave some of it out. So there, there, I don't think there's any great uh, deep examinations of my uh, my character in there. Right, because we did, I know, on, as I say, uh, on the on the previous book that we did together, Frank, uh, we did kind of flirt, I wouldn't say to a deep level, but we, we did touch on the you know, the more personal side of your life, didn't we? Yeah, we did. You were trying to uh, you were trying to flag up uh, the differences in people's uh, people's upbringing and mm. what what, a, what difference it can make to them. Yeah, and uh, we we tried to contrast my what I thought was an incredibly um, happy, secure childhood and upbringing with the difficult time that you had. You know, and I thought you. You pull that out really well in, the, in in your book. Yeah, and one of the examples you cited at the time, um, 
Frank, and I'll quote from our book, was the nature virtues nurture debate that's been seems to have been going on since the year dot. Um, and I think you actually singled out George Best as a prime example. Well, yes, I mean, you're right, the debate will go on forevermore. Uh, and uh, the sort of bias from each to the other kind of changes with, uh, with, with different eras, I think. But I think we were talking about, uh, I read a, a, a blog had written a book who said uh, George Best was only a great player because he worked hard and was brought up in a football environment in, uh, in Belfast. Um, and I said, well, I could have, I had a very similar upbringing in a football mad environment in, in the northeast of England, and I could have trained 24 hours a day and would never have had the abilities that George Best had. Mm. So there is a, you know, there's an argument of, of what the percentages are, but there's no doubt that, that both nature and nurture play a, a very important part in, in, in anybody's uh, character and, build, and building, character building. I know when I did my teaching degree, we had to study that very concept. And, uh, you know, for me, no pun intended here, but I don't think you can make it as black and white as it's one or the other. No, I, I, I'm saying I think this is, uh, both, both uh, play a part. Uh, I was also very fortunate in the schools I went to. Um, the primary school was only a, well, you would class it as, in those days, a run-of-the-mill primary school, but it was I thought it was an excellent school. Uh, I then was fortunate enough to get to a grammar school. Uh, and I know they've gone out of fashion now, but it was the perfect environment for me mm. in terms of the facilities, in terms of the teaching, in terms of the discipline, in terms of the sporting opportunities. Um so that, you know, that had to play a part as well. Yeah, and that's an interesting one, uh, Frank, that uh, word, uh, well, those words grammar school, because as we spoke yet again last time, I also went to a, an old boys grammar school, but because of the instability of my um, background, the results and our paths in life were completely different. Well, mine wasn't all, all boys, there was boys and girls. <laughs> I was quite grateful for it at times. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it does, you know, I mean... People keep asking me uh, now questions about um, do you do things that Brian Clough did? Did you, you know, because I played for Brian, and people said, did you pick things up from him uh, when you became a manager? Did you, you know, try to do the things he did? And my answer to that is really what we're talking about. I think you you take things and pick things up from everybody you come in contact with, yeah. whether it be a teacher, whether yeah. it be a mate, whether it be your pals, or you know, whatever. And uh, you take that all in, and you evaluate it yourself, and then it comes out. It comes out in you as you, in your personality. I mean, I learned a lot from uh, Brian Clough, but there was no way I could ever be another Brian Clough. There was no way I was going to try and do that because the man's incredible uh, personality was was what made him uh, what he was. You know, uh, with everything else put together. So I do think that you you take in all the uh, all these influences that you that you come across, and some you discard obviously, and and some that you think yeah that, that that'll do for me in the future, you know. Yeah, I mean, some would say though, Frank. Actually, I think you've been quite modest there, but I mean, you you're better qualified than certainly me to answer this. But some would say that Brian wasn't as good at the guitar as you were. <laughs> well, no, he wasn't. <laughs> I remember once uh, when I went up to see him at his house and. Uh, uh, this was when I was managing, and, and he he left and uh, he retired, and he disappeared. Uh, sometime Alan and Hill and I were up there seeing him. We just went up for a cup of tea with him, and he came back with a. He found a guitar somewhere, 
and he, he wasn't very good on the guitar. Man, it wasn't it wasn't in tune when he brought it back. So yeah, he, <laughs> he asked me to if I could tune it up a little bit. So I tuned it up, and uh, he asked me to play him a couple of Ink Spots songs. Right. Well, the Ink Spots weren't really my my strength, but I did uh, I did bring a smile to his face. I think. Yeah. Okay. I've still I've still got that uh, little twinkle in my eye, Frank, about us doing a duo. <laughs> well, you never know. <laughs> you never know. You never know. Good, cha- a good charity angle, I think. Okay, so um, your A level results, Frank, were not quite good enough. Not quite good enough. Um, things were a little bit different then. I mean, I'm not. I don't know really what the system is now, but yeah, there were no sort of not really clearing houses where you could uh, and, and no, no uh, possibility of. Uh, of Sitting it again and having your paper remarked. Um, I wanted to go to university and do a degree in chemistry. Don't ask me why. Don't ask me what I was going to do with it. I hadn't a clue. I just that's what I wanted to do. Right. Uh, so I took chemistry, physics, and maths at, at A level, and I found A level maths very very difficult. Uh, physics and chemistry I was okay with, um, and I applied for three or four universities. I applied for Newcastle. I applied for Sheffield. Uh, one or two more. I got an interview at, uh, at Sheffield, uh, and I got a conditional acceptance, but I had to get um, certain marks and passes in the, in my A levels. I had to get, in fact, either an A, A B, C. It was marked in those days. A, B, C, D, E, and I had to get above a C, or in all three, to get accepted. Right. I got an A in, in chemistry, a B in, in physics, and a C minus in, in uh, an D, in fact, in maths. Right. Uh, so I didn't get in. Um, my biggest mistake was leading up to the A-level exam. I wasn't a genius. I used to have to work hard. You know, mm. I used to have to do lots of uh, work and revision and that kind of thing. Leading up to the my A-levels, uh, I was picked uh, to play for an England youth team on a tour to Israel. And also for the uh, England amateur team for a tour to Italy and Holland, and I took all my books with me, and I don't think I opened them once, you know. Right. So I think my revision suffered a little bit. So it could have yeah. been that. So I didn't. I, I didn't get in. I was. I was. I was pretty disillusioned actually, because I'd got nine all levels, and and very good all levels, two or three distinctions, and uh, I was. I was quite upset with the with the, with the edu- education system, if you like. Mm. I thought I deserved better than that. Teacher said, "Well, you could you could go and be a teacher in the teacher training college, you know." But I didn't want to do that. I'm not decrying teaching. I just didn't particularly fancy it myself, you know. Mm. But I have the greatest admiration for for teachers. Um, and uh, it was I messed about a bit for a couple of months, really. I have to say, my mother was starting to get a bit uh, anxious at me hanging around the house. I was playing at that time for Crook Town as an amateur. Um, Although we did get paid a few good expenses, and Newcastle had been trying to sign me for about four years, uh, and eventually they helped me get a job in the Royal Victoria Infirmary in, New- in Newcastle, working in the biochemistry department, and I signed as a part-time professional, uh, and that's that's how I started in football, really. Um, and it went okay for a while, and I broke my leg, or Tommy Smith broke my leg. Let's get that right. Um, I'm absolutely sure he didn't mean it. Uh, there you go. One or two people have said he would, but I don't think he would not deliberately break my leg. It was, it was a bit of a nasty tackle, but there you go. And I was out for, I didn't play for 11 months. 
Because in those days, treatment was very uh, conservative. I was actually in bed for six weeks, not allowed to get up at all. And then when I finally did get out of bed, I had a full-length plaster on for another 17 weeks. So you can imagine, like, the, the muscles in the leg had, had, like, gone all together, you know. Yeah. Um, and during that time, the professor at the, uh, at, at the hospital uh, in charge of the laboratory said, you know, I think this is not going to work, you know, because I couldn't work for about three months, four months. So you're going to have to make a choice. So I didn't, by that time, I thought the job wasn't really right for me. I was, I was massively overqualified uh, for it. And I had a better idea that I was going to be a footballer. That I had a chance. The maximum wage had been lifted. All of a sudden, it looked a much, a much uh, more attractive career, you know. So I decided to uh, to take the plunge. And unfortunately, I came back with no ill effects and managed to do okay. Excellent. One of the comments, Frank, as a professional footballer, I was having to distance myself from my old friends. Yeah, I mean, that's just... That, and they all do. The ones who want to be successful. When you when you say this, I don't mean cut them off altogether. Um, but people people have this impression that it's 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 like a doddle being a professional footballer. You earn this cash, and all you do is play one or two games a week. But it's very 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 competitive industry. You know, if you if you look at the academies now and the young, the young players, oh, I don't know if there's one in twenty make it through to the the, the full time game. I would think that's being optimistic. Mm. Um, so you have to uh, you have to make sacrifices, um, and you know young lads, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, uh, used to like to go out and have a drink. I don't mean you know big drinkers, but would like to go out. Friday's a big night, a big night out. Yeah. You know Thursday, Friday, yeah. and um, you, you just couldn't you couldn't do that. You know I'm, I don't think I've ever been out on a Thursday and Friday before a game in my life. Don't get me wrong, I didn't live like a monk, but you know, I had a good time the other days of the week. But uh, but Thursday and Friday, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't go. And then I, then we moved house, of course, when I was nineteen. We moved, you know, as you know, from Highfield across to Wrighton, which is about nine miles away. And I just lost touch with them, really. Mm. Um, so the friends that I really grew up with, I'd lost touch with. But fortunately, my school friends, my the people from the sixth form at the grammar school. They've kept in touch, and we're still in touch, which is which is lovely. You know, we have this uh, lovely um, meeting up once a year in a in a nice hotel up in the Northumbrian foothills, and uh, and we all you know get together and wallow in nostalgia. Yeah. So you know that's that's really good. That excellent mindset, Frank. So what do you get, to what degree do you think mindset played a part in your develop your progression in life, and certainly as a footballer. Oh, absolutely! Um, a lot of a lot of football, top level football, is played in the mind. Um, I uh, I think I've maybe told you this before, but I loved the profession. I loved being a professional footballer, but I never actually enjoyed the ninety minutes playing. Right. People used to say, "Oh, you just go out and enjoy yourself." It was too important. Mm. Um, it was about winning the game. You know, You're, once you become a professional at anything, it's about winning. You know, you've got to win and. And uh, as a professional footballer, I felt I had to concentrate and do everything that I possibly could within the, I'm not talking about win at all costs, but within the rules of the game yeah. to help that w- to win the game over the 90 minutes. So, it was, I was too, I was probably too intense to be able to sort of sit back and actually enjoy it as it went on. Um, but I, you know, I enjoyed everything else about it, the rewards and the, the training and the, and the lifestyle. 
the fantastic way to earn a living. Yeah, which leads us in quite nicely to prosperity, uh, Frank. Um, the Dolce Vita nightclub. Enlighten us, if you will. Well, in, listen, around that time, I'm sure it was true in lots of uh, towns and cities, but in, in Newcastle in the, in the 60s, the nightlife was, was absolutely superb. We had three, three excellent nightclubs, uh, and the Dolce Vita was, was amazing. It used to get real top-notch uh, entertainers there, and you didn't have to pay an entrance fee to get in and, and, and actually watch them, you know. Mm. I mean, I, can rem- I remember seeing Tom Jones there, Tommy Cooper, um, uh, an actress called Jane Mansfield, who not many of the listeners have probably even heard of. And, and you might say, well, well, what the hell did she do? Well, she kind of paraded around the, the stage with a couple of dancers in various, <laughs> in various uh, you know, luminous kind of uh, yeah. um, get-ups. And uh, <laughs> she went down a bomb, I've got to tell you. Uh, but it was, uh, so I was a regular there at the beginning of the week or on a Saturday night. And then we had two other nightclubs as well, Grace Club, and, and the Cavendish Club, which the Grace Club was the elite, really, a Cavendish with more down to earth. And then we had this fantastic blues club where the animals the animals started, you know, right. when they used to be called the Alan Price Combo. Right. Um, they started there, so the nightlife was fantastic. So I can imagine, um, forgive the um, June 1969 beating Hungarian side, Ujpes Dotscha. Yeah, that's as close as you can get, yeah. Yeah. I bet the champagne flowed a bit then, didn't oh, it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that was just the most incredible experience. Uh, we were written off as no hopers when we ended it. I won't go into the detail of how we got in cause it, into it because it will take forever and people wouldn't believe it anyway. Uh, so we were the underdogs every round that we played in. We played against some real top European teams, you know, Feyenoord. That following season, Feyenoord won the European Cup. Uh then Sporting Lisbon, who are one of the giants of, uh, of Europe. Uh, Real Zaragoza, who'd won the, this first cup uh, two years previously. And then we played Rangers in the semi-final, who were the you know, Scottish giants. And this Wipesh Dozer, or, you know, almost, that's pretty close. Don Revy had, had, had rated them the best team in Europe. Wow. Um, and we managed to beat them 6-2 in, in the final. So it was just an amazing time, you know. What a really a good team, really good set of lads. Um, and it was just fantastic for me to be to be able to play for the team that I'd supported all my life and, and, and win a European trophy. So did the guitar come out that night, Frank, or was it as you purely uh, lifting the champagne? No, I didn't you know, I didn't come out that night. A, a, a few a cappella songs came out, I have to say, <laughs> uh, in, in the dressing room and in the and in the hotel because the second leg was away. Yeah. Um, so we beat them 3-0 at home and then won 3-2 out in Hungary. Uh, so we actually received the trophy in, in, in Budapest, and the hotel in Budapest was uh, was jumping with uh, some a cappella rock and roll. I've got to tell you, right? And I'm and I'm kind of tempted to probe what went off in the dressing room, but I know the old cliche: what went off in the dressing room stays in the dressing well, room. Well, no, there was no, there was nothing, uh, nothing hidden. I mean, it was it, the dressing room was o- was open season. All the press, the local press lads right. were in. Uh, two or three of the players' wives had actually gone over there for the game. I mean, I, I wasn't married then, but two or three of the players' wives had gone over. Um, so the well, the rock and roll stuff started in there because one or two of the press lads fancied themselves as, as singers as well, uh, and then carried on when we uh, when we got back to uh, to the hotel. I mean, the only thing that that happened in the dressing room that you, you might find amusing it was very amusing. At half time, we were two down, so that was three two on aggregate. 
And they had murdered us, honestly. We'd hardly had a kick of the ball. They were fantastic. And our goalkeeper, Willie McFall, had been played out of his skin. And uh, we're all sat there, like heads down, thinking, Christ, we're lucky to still be in this. And the manager came in, Joe, Joe Harvey, who wasn't renowned as a great tactician, but could usually find a, a phrase that maybe had an effect. And he came in, he said, listen, get your heads up. Get your, all you've got to do is score a goal. Yeah. <laughs> and Bobby, the <laughs> captain, Bob Moncur, said, score a goal, we can't get a kick. Anyway, we went out. Within 60 seconds, Bob had scored a goal, and Joe was right. It was like pricking them with a pricking a balloon with a pin. Yeah. Because they realised then that they had to score another three, and if I had to, so I had to win five, mm. five one to beat us. And they just they had just gone completely, and we we finished up winning the game quite quite comfortably. Picking up on your on your sentence there, Frank, I wasn't married then. So you met your good lady when you was twenty seven. No, no, I got married when I was twenty seven. Sorry, you got married when met you were twenty seven. Met her in, uh, in in September, November, uh, September, October of sixty nine. Right. Okay. So I'd be twenty six. Twenty six. Yeah. Did you want to tell us a little bit about the good lady? Yeah, I mean, twenty six. My mother was starting to get worried. You know how it was in in those days, uh, Paul. If you weren't married by the time you were twenty one, people start to worry about you. Uh, so she started to get worried. I was too busy having a good time. Um, and I met uh, I met Palm at a party one night in uh, in Newcastle. Um, she was she was working for a, a solicitor in Newcastle. I took her home from the party and it just went from there. Really, mm. she was a bit shocked when we were walking out. One of her friends shouted at her, "You're only going out with him because he's got an E-type jag." Oh. And she thought, oh, "Oh, that'll do for me." When she saw my Cortina, she was a little bit disappointed. <laughs> Do you know, my aunt fluttered that word it was, E-type. It was a Lotus Cortina, I have to tell you, oh. but it certainly wasn't an E-type. The white with the green flash. <laughs> yeah, that's the one. Yeah. 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 Flying machines. That's the one. I, Beautiful. I loved that. I loved that. I loved, I've loved cars all my life. Yeah. If I'd never passed my driving test, I'd be a wealthy man, but I, 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 I love cars, you know. I mean, I, I blew, uh, we were married this time. In those days, if you were with a club for 10 years, you got a, a, a loyalty bonus of fifteen hundred pounds automatically in your in your in your, in your payment line, and I blew the lot on a Triumph Stag. Triumph Stag, um, right? With my dream car for a while <coughs> until I came down here and it started to drop to pieces. Did you um, <coughs> did you ever have an E-type Jaguar, Frank? No, I didn't. No, no, no I never aspired to that. Really, no. Oh, beautiful motor, beautiful motor. So we move on. We move on. You mentioned earlier on, Frank, a certain um, fairly well-known manager called Brian Clough. Any more insights that you care to share about the man? Well, only that he was uh, he was a genius and as rightly acclaimed as, as one of the greatest man- English managers of all time, you know? Yeah. Uh, uh, an enigma could be the most uh, charming person you've ever met and in the next breath could be extremely rude. Uh, and arrogant, but a great, great manager. He had this um, this unique uh, ability to man- manage people, man management, or mm. you call it. You know? uh, he'd never read a, a book on man management. I'd done a course on man management in his life. It was it was all natural, but he just had this amazing knack of uh, of getting the best out of people who work for him. And that's what, for me, that's what management's about, you know. Absolutely. You, uh, not totally about that. You have to, you acquire the, in football, it's it's about acquiring the quality players that you can, 
and then managing them to get the best out of them. And he was uh, he was absolutely brilliant at that. He didn't complicate the game. He had a way of playing that he that he stuck to, more or less. I mean, even at Derby, the the, the, the tactical setup with Derby was was al almost the same as it was at Forest, with Alan Hinton playing as the left winger at Derby. John Robertson obviously was the left winger at uh, at Forest, and the other three midfield players all work, work workaholics, like you know. Um, and everybody in our team knew what their job was. Yeah, he never asked people to do what they couldn't do. Um, but everybody knew what, what they were there to do, and as long as you tried to do that to the best of your ability, you're okay. Mm. People talk about him uh, ruling by fear. That's that's nonsense. We all had a healthy respect for him, and we certainly didn't didn't try tried very hard not to get on the wrong side of him. But it was it was just this thing that you know that, that's what you've got to do in your position. That's what he's got to do. Uh, as long as you try to do it and gave a hundred percent, that was all he asked. So. As supporters on the terraces, Frank, we were led to believe the old cliche of good cop, uh, bad cop was, was 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 the case with Brian and Peter Taylor. Was that the case? Well, there was a bit of that, uh, but the, it, that wasn't that clearly defined. It wasn't mm. always one, you know, you couldn't say Brian was always a good cop or Peter was always a good cop. Uh, but, although what, what were, they were very, very good at working, sparking each other off. That, yeah. was, um, that was a different, you see, when Peter came, that's, that made the difference to Brian at that time. Yeah. But but people forget, uh, some people forget anyway, who, who try to make out that um, Brian was only successful with Peter. After Peter retired, Brian had the most amazing, uh, how many years would it be, 10 or 12 years at Forest mm. on his own, where he kept them in the in the top half of, of the first division, which is now the Premier League, yeah. year after year. Won two more uh, league cups, produced uh, an incredible number of, of terrific young players through the youth system. Mm. All that with him, and Peter had gone then, you know. Yeah. So whilst I'm not trying to decry Peter's input, I'm just trying to balance it out a little bit. That a lot of people have this mistaken idea that Brian couldn't manage without Peter. Uh, but when they were together, it was something absolutely extra special. Peter was. Peter was a great um, uh, spotter of, of talent. He was he was the one in the main who, who brought the players, and Brian was the one who who got the most out of them, got, got, got everything out of them, you know. And uh, and they and they were good for each other, you know. Peter was a funny man, Peter Taylor, and he used to make Brian laugh. And you know, it's, it's, that's important, especially when you, nowadays when you're a manager, you need somebody who's going to make you laugh occasionally. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Brian, I think, from what we led to believe, uh, Frank, was very flattering in his approach to you to come and sign for him. Oh, very flattering, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I'd just been given a free transfer by, by Newcastle, which is the same as being sacked, really. The, the euphemism is they call a free transfer. <laughs> and uh, I didn't have too many options. Um, Brian had, had been tipped off by a, 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 a journalist from the northeast that I'd been given a free it, it's amazing in these days, but it wasn't very widely known at the time. The club, the club tried to keep it quiet, you know, which was quite disappointing, really. Anyway, we arranged to meet. We arranged to meet at uh, this hotel at Scotch Corner, mm. and uh, so I set off in my Triumph Stag, 
and it broke down in the tiny tunnel, would you believe? Right. And of course, I didn't have mobile phones in those days. I somehow got in touch with my wife and asked her to ring this hotel. And anyway, he waited. I was an hour and a half late. He waited, which was a surprise in itself. <laughs> I was never late again, by the way. And uh, when I got there, he said, he said two things to me. He said, right, he said, let's just make sure we get up on the right foot here. I'm only interested in signing it, A, because you're a left back, and I've got nobody in my club who wants to play left back. And the other reason is you're cheap. <laughs> so I thought, well, thanks for that, Brian. That's, yeah. uh, I know where I stand. Yeah. Uh, but, other than, uh, but other than that, he was great for me. He, he left me alone most of the time um, he, because he knew that I, was, I would do the best I could all the time. He didn't have to worry about me whether I was in the team or not in the team. I would always be ready to play. and Excuse me. I'd always do the, the best that I could. And uh, he told me that he didn't want to make me captain, uh, which I was quite relieved about because I'd been captain at Newcastle in the previous year and it, it had been quite difficult because of club politics. Yeah. Um, at the time, Sammy Chapman was the captain, but I think I think Brian saw John McGowan as, uh, as the long-term captain because, you know, he knew John. He'd been with John for a number of years. Yeah. So I was relieved at that, and he knew that I would still play a part in the dressing room, that I could still be an influence on the players. I didn't have to be the captain, like, you know? Yeah. Um, so we had, a, we had a really good relationship. I mean, I used to have the odd row or two. I, I'm, I don't know whether I told you the story about how he, he was going to find me for training on my day off. Um, when I first came, I, I decided that uh, I was 30, born nearly 32, that if I was going to carry on at, at the top level and, and get a few more years, I, I, I would, I'd read somewhere when Muhammad, somebody asked Muhammad Ali about, uh, do you train less now that you're getting older? And Muhammad said, no, I actually train more. I feel I've got to train more. I thought, well, if it's good enough for him, it's good enough for me. Mm. <laughs> anyway, came down here and... Um, don't get me wrong, the pre-season was really hard. It was really hard, physical pre-season. But once the season started, we used to get quite a few days off. And I was a little bit concerned about this initially, and I would I would sometimes just go out for a, a gentle a run just around the roads in Loudoun where I lived. Nothing too severe, but just something to get my old bones moving, you know. Anyway, a supporter one day must have seen me. He was passed in his car, and he wrote a letter in the newspaper and said, what a great pro Frank Clark is. Brian's giving him the day off and he's out there running on the roads. So I go into the club and I'm thinking, Phew. and he pulled me and he said, when I give you a day off, you have a day off or I'll find you. So, so I tried to explain it to him. He wouldn't have it. He wouldn't have it. So him being him and me being me, I did it, I was told. And at the end of my second season there, I'd played 105 consecutive games. Never missed one. And he called me in and he said, Who's right now? I looked at him and I thought, what's he talking about? And he reminded me of that conversation we had <laughs> nearly two years previously. Right. I'd forgotten all about it, which was like a measure of his, of his, of his attention to detail, you know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's incredible, man. Mm. Positive mindsets, Frank. We, we touched upon that early, earlier on and looking for new opportunities. And, and certainly as your career developed... You you did that, didn't you? Because I mean, we've just mentioned out, you know, around the forest thing, from player to manager, you know, to chairman, ambassador. I mean, you know, to use one of Cluffy's 
And I think, um, you know, from chairman to tea lady, you, you was never a tea, tea person, was you? No, I never made the tea. I used to help clean out the toilets at Leighton Orient and make right. sure there was plenty of toilet paper in them before the games, but I didn't actually make the tea. We had two lovely old fellas used to come in and make the tea for us at Leighton Orient. Yeah. Harry, and, uh, Harry and Jimmy didn't have to make my own tea. But <laughs> I think the, the point there, Frank, is looking for, you know, whether it's in football or in life, because I think there's a lot of strong parallels between the two. And it is about keeping that positive mindset and looking for those new angles, isn't it? I suppose it is. I mean, I, I, I'm not sure what, quite what you're getting at, but uh, I, I speak to uh, young managers occasionally these days, not so much now because I'm not don't do as much for the LMA as I used to, but I used to be a mentor, uh, the LMA young manager. And I speak to them uh, and they, they moan about having to do this at their club and having to do that at their club. And mm. I've, I've got to pat the skips. And, uh, and I say to them, well, listen, do you want to stay in the game? You know, do you want to stay in the game at your club? And I'm, I, you know, I'm talking about that first and second division clubs. There isn't anybody else who's going to pat the kit. Mm. Well, there isn't anybody else who's going to look after the skips. You've got to do it. You're the manager. That's part of your task, you know. And if you don't want to do it, then chuck the job in. But, you know, you'll never get back in again. So you've got to do what what needs to be done. I mean, at the top level now, obviously, the staff's are incredible. You know, the manager, yeah. it's still hard because the manager's got to manage them as well. He's not, he's not just got to manage the players. You know, the Sam Allardyce usually has a staff of about 20, 21 people, you know, and he has got to manage them as well. Mm. Um but you just have to do what what has to be done in the situation that you're in, you know. And uh, or if you don't like it, get out and change it. Do yeah. something different. I mean, to clarify, uh, Frank, on your question, I'm not sure what you're getting at. What I was trying to get at, whether whether it's football or life in general, you know, we have challenges, don't we? We have challenges in life, and we have a choice to make. We can either get bogged down and feel sorry for ourselves. Or we can say, right, okay, do you know what? I'm going to really have a go at this and I'm going to pop that positivity into it. And I, one way or another, I will turn it round. But that takes perseverance and tenacity, as we know. Yeah, 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 it does, you're right. And, and, and football is, you know, it's like every other uh, industry, it's, that's how it is. And uh, I mean, when I first came here, you know, um, as manager, um, the club was at a really low ebb. Everybody was. Uh, Depressed, downhearted, they'd been relegated, the Messiah had gone. Everybody was worried to death about what was going to happen. Mm. There were a number of issues within the club um, that had to be dealt with. The um, ticket office manager had just gone to jail. Yeah. Um, the Bungs inquiry was flying around the, the club. Um, there was a, a television team from a, a programme called World in Action actually based in Nottingham, who were doorstepping my staff, trying to get dirt on the, dig dirt on the club. Mm. And I had four internationals who wanted to, wanted to leave. Uh, so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't an easy environment to come into. Um, but as you say, you just, you've got to sit down and deal with it. Yeah. Um, and we came through it. I mean, uh, initially it didn't go too well. Uh, early October, we were fifth, sixth from bottom. And the natives were getting pretty restless, I've got to tell you. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, understandably so. Um, but we just we persevered. Um, we had one or two injuries. Stan got injured and Cooper got injured and Colin, and, and Colin Cooper. Um, they came back and then I signed Lars Bohinen and that was like the, almost like 
fitting the last piece of the jigsaw into the mm -hmm. team and we and we took off from there sort of mid-October, won at Birmingham and, and never looked back for two years anyway. Mm. Um, but it was a bit hairy for for a while, you know. Yeah. Because the board, the board had told me, don't, we don't hear any talk about consolidation, you know, we expect you to get us straight back into the Premier League next season, you know, there's no, no hanging about. So, so it, was, it was quite a pressurised situation. I think that was the same season, Frank, where we all went down to Peterborough towards the end. Uh, was 2-0 down after seven minutes. Ken Charlery, if memory serves, and then ended up winning 3-2. Colin Moore, Stuart Pearce got a goal. I can't remember who the other one was. Um, no, I can't either. Stan Stan got two. Co yeah, Stan, Stan Colin Moore got two. But, yeah. And then the following Tuesday, that was on the Saturday, and then on the Tuesday we went to, to Grimsby. Thinking, oh, that because that effectively did the promotion. Thing. Yeah, we were up then, yeah. Um, but it was a lackluster nil-nil up at Grimsby on a Tuesday yeah. night. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, and wow. I wasn't, I wasn't very happy about that. But there you go. Um, <laughs> it was understandable in a way. Right. Uh, but that day at Peterborough was a, a special day. Um, unfortunately, some of our supporters spoiled it a little bit at the end. Mm. I don't know if you remember, but uh, maybe you were one of them. I don't know. I'm not too sure about you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but there was uh, there was nearly a, a bit of a riot um, to the point where the the chief of police on the day asked me to to go on the tannoy and broadcast an appeal mm. to them, to our supporters, to, just to calm down and go back to Nottingham and celebrate there. You know. Yeah. And. Uh, which I did. I, I mean, I, the scenes were frightening. I saw I saw women and children screaming and running all over the place outside the ground and inside the ground. And uh, I, I was quite disappointed on the Monday to be castigated as a um, what? No, not the word that they used. Uh, killjoy by the Evening Post, right? In their editorial, you know, which I found very very disappointing. I mean, nobody wanted to stop them celebrating, but it was going too far. Mm. A, a lot of people there will testify. Yeah, I mean, my my overriding um, memory, supporters-wise, in an adverse context, was them scaling the floodlights um, on that particular day. Yeah, yeah, there was yeah. a bit of that, but that was that wasn't the worst of it. Like, yeah, and I must, you know, on a personal level, I, I personally didn't witness any of that stuff, uh, but I know. You know, I, I was brought up um, in you know on football in the seventies, and uh, I actually, despite my life being embroiled in violence, as you know, from a football context, deliberately ostracised myself. Yeah. From, you know, my, mine was personal stuff, and I never took that into the the gang culture of the game, right. and it sickened me. And I've I've seen some kind of things that you're alluding to, Frank. I've seen some horrible, horrible things that I, no person should witness. I'm sure you have. Yeah, I mean, you'll you'll have seen witness a lot more than me because it usually happens when when we're cosseted away in the dressing room or yeah. out of the way, you know. Yeah, yeah. In terms of um, successful people and laser-like focus, I'm going to throw a name at you that you've thrown at me previously, Frank. Hilton Smith. Well, yeah, I mentioned it to you. Yeah, I mean, Hilton Smith is a is a, is a name from my past. Um, we went to the same school. Um, he was a little bit older than me. I think a year or two older than me. But he was my not mentor really, but he he was one I looked up to. The you know the Nile. He was a great footballer. 
and I looked up to him as, a, as, as that and as a, as a person. I, I don't think he ever ha really had much of a career in the game, but he, growing up younger than him, I thought he was a, a top, top player. Mm. And uh, I met him one day um, at my cousin's funeral because he, he actually had a friend, he was a friend of my cousin. And he said something really nice to me that day. I hadn't seen him for donkey's years, like, you know, and he said, uh, he said, I always, he said, I always knew when, I used to be some big Newcastle supporter, I always knew when I went to watch Newcastle, if you were playing, that the back four would be organised, you know. I could, I could sense your intensity sort of coming up off the pitch at me, like, you know, and I knew mm -hmm. that you would, that you would make sure you didn't play well every game and we didn't win every game, but I knew it with you, with you and the team, it would, uh, the back four would be organised. I thought, well, that's settled for that, help. Yeah. And mentoring in life and in football, Frank, how influential or important do you deem that to be? Well, it can be, it can be very, very important. Um, and for, unfortunately, it's a, it's, a, it's a difficult skill, Paul, you know. I think people think mentoring, anybody can do it. And you just have to sit and talk to somebody or listen to them and tell them what you would do, and that's mentoring. Well, that isn't mentoring, you know. Um, I find it quite difficult when I first started doing it with the LMA. And we we actually brought uh, some people in, some professional people in to, to to advise us and guide us through it a little bit. Um, but it's 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 vital. Uh, I'm saying everybody needs one. If if you can get one, it it is a good one, or she's a good one. Uh, it can be absolutely vital. I mean, I don't know whether Brian Clough actually had a mentor, but I know he, he looked up to Alan Brown, who was his manager at Sunderland. Right. Okay. And uh, people tell me that a, a lot of the things that Brian did, he he, he probably picked up from Alan Brown. Um, I didn't know Alan Brown that well, although uh, strange enough, I was actually a I was actually signed for Sunderland when I was fifteen as a schoolboy, hmm. and uh, I used to live about thirty miles away. I used to have to get two buses and a train to go down to training two nights a week from from where I lived. To train with the part timers and the other schoolboys at at Sunland's training ground in in Cleden, and he used to be there all the time. The manager, the first team manager, used to be at all these training sessions, and he was a he was a fearsome man. He was scared to death of them. Um, but I do believe that uh, that Brian was looked up to him a, a great deal. Wasn't there a certain irony there then? Because didn't Brian take over from Alan Brown when Alan Brown was sacked um, at the Christmas 74? No, that's a different Alan Brown. Oh, that's a different Alan. Right, it wasn't Alan Brown, but right. it was a different one. Right, okay. Um, I think that Alan Brown at Forest was a, a Scotsman. If, yes, he uh, was, yeah. yes. No, that wasn't him, no. Right, no. okay. Oh, right. Okay, so I just want to, as we start to, uh, as the referee, proverbial referee, uh, Frank picks the whistle up to put towards his lips, um, Worried Man Blues. I'm not going to let you off this music thing. I've got this vision of me and you doing a song right. before. You know, it's on my bucket list. It All might right. not be top of yours, but no, hopefully. Well, we can, I'm sure it can be arranged. <laughs> I'm sure. So just give us a little insight, Frank, about Worried Man Blues. Well, Worried Man Blues is, uh, is one of those songs that all old rockers know and know how to sing. You know, I mean, I, would, I, I once saw Rod Stewart and uh, Ronnie Lane reminiscing on a, a TV program about their lives, you know, because yeah. they played together in the faces and all, uh, small faces and all that. Yeah. And 
when they got the guitars out, that's what they sang, Worried Man Blues. Like, you know, all old rockers sing Worried Man Blues. It's a nice, easy song to sing, easy to play. Um, uh, the version I heard was uh, the Lonnie Donegan Skiffle Group, and um, I always try and get that into my act wherever I'm singing. Yeah. Right. So on this proverbial double then, Frank, I can see it now at the Palladium. Um, I can see it. I've got this vision. Um, things like, I mean, please forgive my musical ignorance, but things like Jerusalem, is is that something that can oh, be done with it? No, it's a bit too sophisticated for me, that oh, Jerusalem. Is it right? Oh, okay. yeah. My yeah. goodness. No, no, yeah. no. No. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Actually, we're in the right place. We, we, we do an annual concert here in the, in the Village Hall for the... Uh, or a, a charity in Africa. Um, right. We we have a, there's a guitar club in the, in the village, Keywith Guitar Club. Right. And it's a fantastic place. Um, people turn up of all different abilities, all different kinds of music, and they get listened to properly, and they get a chance to to sing and play and jo- we join in together, and, and uh, we meet two or three times a month, and we usually managed to put on a, a concert once a year for this uh, this charity in Africa, Ka- the, the Kazanuni charity, they call it. You know. Right. So we're in the right place here. Okay. Well, Johnny Cash was an awful man with the guitar, wasn't he? He certainly was. And I like his genre of music, so maybe I need to get gend up on that, Frank. Yeah, well... No there, pressure, by the way. No, there's, a, no, there's a, lot of, well, a lot of Johnny Cash songs are pretty simple as well, you know. You, yeah. You'll find that most of the stuff I sing is three chords at the most. You know? Right, okay. <laughs> and... Uh, so, you know, Folsom Prison Blues and yeah. something like that, you yeah. could, uh, we could certainly put that together. I'm right, sure. okay. I want to close, Frank, if I can, uh, with a great quote. And you, last time we spoke about this, when you imparted this, you went at great lengths to, to attribute this to uh, the late, great Jimmy Cyril. Can you remember what the quote was? I can, yes. The best, about football, yep. the best team always wins. Yep. The rest is only gossip. What a fantastic quote. I just I was I read that in a program somewhere and it was attributed to Jimmy. I just thought it was the most amazing quote. He put it, he puts it, you know, right on the nail there. And it's, I mean the gossip obviously the gossip's almost taken over these days, you know, yeah, but yeah. Uh, when you think about it it's um it, it's typical of the man. He was a he was a great down to earth character, Jimmy, you know. Mm. And a very, very good manager, of course. Yeah, yes. So, Frank, over to you for the uh, the final word then around the book, black and white and red all over. Well, I hope people will, will enjoy it. It's uh, It really is. Um, maybe it's a little bit too much about my career. Uh, uh, I'd ha- my idea really was to just get down about my life for my grandkids, really. Yeah. And my daughters, in a way. Um, and my sons-in-law, who, who really all, they all missed the... The, the playing bit, of, well, the footballer, because I didn't get married till I was 27, 28. Um, so by the time my daughters got married, I wasn't playing anymore, you know. So so they missed all that. And, of course, my grandsons have got uh, – grandchildren, rather. I've got two grandsons and a, and a granddaughter. They missed the whole thing, you know. So they really don't know much about it, other than the heard is taught about it occasionally. I just thought I'd like to get something down for them, really, before yeah. I got uh, too old to remember it, you know. I'm, yeah. I'm, Bad enough trying to remember things as it is, and I bumped into Terry Bowles, a local a local journalist who'd just done one with Les Brad. Yeah, and I thought, well, and we got talking, and he was saying that he 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 having finished the book with Les, there was a hole in his life, um, and he was looking for something else to uh, to try, and I thought, well, 
let's see if we can if we can do it because we published it ourselves. I, I punted around for a few years with with various sports journalists and 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 uh, publishers without ever getting anywhere. Mm. It's very difficult to make money, you know, with a, yeah. a, a sports book these days. So publishers are a little bit a bit reluctant to take a chance. I mean that the first book I wrote that you mentioned, I thought it was a, a terrific read for people about football, not about me. Um, but it didn't. Uh, I mean, it didn't sell very well, you know. Mm. Um, so and then I'd more or less given up. I thought, well, it's not going to happen. It doesn't really matter. And then I, then I met Terry, and I, I just I just triggered it off really. So we spent a lot of time uh, getting it down. Um, and it's a it's a pretty fair resume of my uh, certainly of my career. And I hope there's one or two more interesting uh, things in it about you know about myself and uh, other things. But, uh, I just hope everybody will enjoy it. You know. Excellent. Okay. Listen, Frank, it's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure to go down memory lane, as it always is, particularly from my point of view when we talk about the red and white angle. I'm not little, not too partial about the black and white bit, but I'm, I'm coming to terms with that, as you know. Um, Listen, we could talk about the red and white angle for another two days. You know, we could. The, yeah. yeah. Per people, personalities. and Yeah, we could. Absolutely. So thank you very much, Frank. And... Um, for the listeners, I hope you've got some um, certainly some enjoyment out of that nostalgia, but also some value. One or two very, very good insights from Frank there. Not necessarily just about football, but life itself. So without further ado, all that remains is for me to wish you safe, safeness and happiness. And until the next time, we'll, we'll speak soon. Thanks for listening to the Mastering the Game of Life podcast. Drop a line to paul at paullowhearts.com with any thoughts or questions you may have, and he'll be more than happy to respond. Alternatively, check out Paul's website at paullowhearts.com or any of his social media feeds under the same name. Remember, mastering life starts by embracing our hearts.